0: Welcome to Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations with Nina Impala. Do you have questions about death? How about events surrounding death? Or perhaps you have questions that need to be answered after death? On this program, we talk frankly and openly about the subject and invite you to share your comments and experiences as well. Now, here is your host, Nina Impala.
1: Hi, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have everybody here today and to introduce my amazing guest, Barbara Carnes. So let's get right down to it. I'm going to go ahead and tell you a little bit about her and then we're going to go ahead and we're going to talk about some great stuff today about hospice. Barbara Carnes, RN, is an award-winning hospice nurse and naturally prominent speaker on the dynamics of dying. As the author of Gone From My Site, which for 25 years has been in the primary source booklet in the end-of-life arena. Her work has been instrumental in creating the most important educational tool in the hospice movement today. Her other booklets are My Friend I Care, A Time to Live, and The 11th Hour. Her book, The Final Act of Living, is the end-of-life resource that offers knowledge to ease fear, misinformation about dying and death. Barbara's 40-year career as an end-of-life educator is predicated on her experience at the bedside of hundreds of people in the months to weeks to minutes before death, as well as being involved in the care of thousands of terminally ill people. Her career path began as a hospice volunteer, like me, and progressed to include staff nurse, clinical director, patient care manager, and executive director of hospice and home health care agencies. That is a mouthful, my dear. We're so glad to have you on the
2: show. I am glad to be here. I think this is exciting. We should have a really good conversation yes. with our histories. Yes. I was really, really
1: happy about the way that I don't know, just all the little synchronicities about the work that we've both done out in the field and I've I've just doing the show today is just gonna be really great. I was watching you earlier on a little LinkedIn Um, video that you had out today, which was so beautiful about a woman that had just some questions that we're going to get to today about death. And to you and I, we've answered these questions many times when I was listening to you talk about it, Barbara. It was so important to me to hear it as well as these little things that are just like, what do I do next? Do I give them water? You know, they've lasted longer than the doctor said they would last. So how that all works. Just before we dive into everything, can you tell us a little bit about your history and how you kind of got on this journey to write your book, Gone from My Sight, and how that all kind of evolved for you?
2: Well, um, I started when hospice started, basically, in the early 80s. And, you know, we were outside of the medical model. Uh, The medical model didn't really know... how people died, what it was like, we stuck them at the end of the room end of the hallway, and um so it was it was totally new territory and as a hospice nurse, my focus was to be there and one night, and I was you know on call, the goblins always come out at night, yes, um. I was on call, and I went to this home, and the family was scared. And mom was in the bedroom, not actively dying, but she, you know, was weeks from death. So I'm with the family in the living room, like three o'clock in the morning, and I'm explaining to them what mom's doing, and that nothing bad or pathological is happening, that she's doing what she's supposed to be doing. And one of the daughters was taking notes. And I thought, oh, she shouldn't have to sit there and take notes about what I'm saying. Right. So, that weekend, this is before computers, it's in the 80s. Right. I sat down with the league, you know, the yellow legal pad, mm-hmm. and yes. wrote what I wanted families to know about approaching death. Because all we have is television and the movies, and people don't die like that. No, they don't. And they that's where the Little Blue Book came from.
1: That book. That book. I mean, anybody that's been in hospice, it's helped so many people. And myself, I've given out hundreds. And you really address everything in it. And so we're going to talk about that today. You know, you're. and I was so glad that I saw that little video on LinkedIn because it was one of the common questions about, you know, we can talk about pain, we can talk about food. There's just so many things that we can talk about today. So what I thought would be really interesting to address is kind of go in order a little bit. So someone's been assigned to hospice, right? And we bring them on, and everything's changing about this person. Everything. You know, what food they're eating, the times that they're sleeping, all these different things. And the family has to kind of wrap their brain around that, Barbara, which is what today is about. And so, let's say, for instance, let's talk about food. That's that's a common, common thing in hospice. I'm Italian, and we feed people to show love. And at the end of life, this is a really difficult decision for many people, you know, because food is love, right? And so we've got a person at the end of their life and describe to us why maybe even, you know, weeks before death or two weeks before death, we see people not wanting to eat anymore.
2: What begins to happen in the body? Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's even go back further than a couple of weeks. Let's okay. go back two to four months oh, okay. before death from disease occurs. Okay. Three things start happening on a continuum. It starts months before death, and these three things work up to the moment of death. And one of the three things is a person's eating habits change. And what was so interesting to me is, as I noticed in the months before death on this progression, this continuum, a person first stopped eating meat, and then it was meat and no fruits and vegetables. And then gradually, they'd stop eating anything that required energy to digest. And then they got to a place where they were taking soft foods, scrambled eggs, puddings, yogurts. And then as they got closer to dying, you were doing good if you could get up a smoothie down them or ice cream, which we all love ice cream. Uh, But that was difficult to get Mm -hmm. a person uh, to to take. And then in the weeks before death, the one to three weeks, you're doing good if you can get um, sips of Gatorade or water down them. And that's because... The body doesn't want the food, not the person. Right. The person wants to eat because they see what it does to us. Right. Because we associate so much with food, mm-hmm. as you said, love, emotional attachment. But what's the bottom line? The bottom line is we eat to live. And if the body's preparing to die all by itself, it cuts back and it gradually stops eating. It's like the gas we put in the car to make it run. I like that metaphor. It's true. And the body's preparing to die. Mm -hmm. So they want to eat. They want to eat for us. They see what they're not eating does to us. Yes. But they just can't eat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's it's one of those things, too, where I, I've witnessed with families, it's like you, you just can't take it personal. You know, no. you just, it's just is what it is. And one of the things that I've explained, Barbara, to people, I, I love that you went back three to four months because I'd never really thought of it that way. Nine times out of ten, you know, people have come on hospice when I worked on it. You know, they're with us not very long. Mm-hmm. and what i found was when having to have the conversation with people what i always did was explain what the body has to go through to digest it what would the body have to do to go through to digest a hamburger you know or or something heavier it's a lot and it's really interesting to me that for a lot of people that's that's like news for them you know but when you're you're Organs aren't working properly it's a very difficult thing for a person to process any kind of food so that, I mean the
2: body's shutting down mm-hmm. nothing works right
1: now in that video today another thing that you were talking about was someone that was imminent was she wanted she had the question of should I give them water mm-hmm. and I know that I've seen and witnessed myself too. Is that if you're not giving them water, then you're, you know, you're torturing them. But water's kind of the same too, because you can choke on it when you're not able to swallow well. Well, at the end of life.
2: Well, and also, as nothing, as I said, nothing in the body works right, and so the kidneys aren't working right mm-hmm. either. And you start pumping in a whole bunch of fluid, well, the kidneys aren't, you know they're they're not peeing it out. And yeah. so that water stays in the body mm-hmm. and it builds up and up. And the person actually ends up drowning to death, which is not a gentle way to die.
1: No, it's not.
2: And the body's natural way to die is is dehydration. And the reason I say that is when the body is dehydrated, the electrolytes in our bloodstream get out of whack and the calcium goes up. And when the calcium in your bloodstream goes up high enough, you go to sleep and you don't wake up. God gives us an anesthetic to get from this world to the next. We will sleep through it if we don't interfere with the wonders of our modern technology. The normal, natural way the body dies is starvation and dehydration. So, Barbara, I, I was reading this, um,
1: I can't remember which one of your books, but I was reading about this in, in one of your books, and you had in there an, also a beautiful explanation to the way we used to die before elders were put in nursing homes and convalescent homes, because if there's an event, a lot of times it happens in a convalescent home, they go to the hospital and they die there, and it's very differently It's very different than it used to be. And I was wondering if you could go into that history a little bit about how death was. Because for me, when I read about that, it it kind of pulled everything together for me to say, as you just said, with technology interfering, that the body does die from dehydration and starvation. That is a natural progression,
2: correct? Absolutely. The body is programmed to die. We are born, we experience, and we die. Mm-hmm. And that has been from the moment of creation, how yeah. our body functions. Mm-hmm. It's born, it dies. And there and how we take care of people that are dying is what's changed over the centuries okay. and will continue to change. It used to be... That we understood that death was a normal part of living. You know, um, yes. Grandma died at home in the yes. upstairs bedroom, mm-hmm. and that, and we we watched her die. We understood the naturalness of it. Yeah. Once. People went to the hospital to die or to a nursing facility to die. We took the naturalness out of it Mm -hmm. because we weren't there and didn't watch it unfold. We show up, you know, a few days before grandma dies and all our our only role models are television and the movies. Yes, that's true. (laughs) and people don't die like they do on television or the movies so we bring our fear of death and fear of dying with us to the bedside yep. and that's why end of life work is so important is to help people understand the natural way the body dies because if you understand that then you're you've neutralized a lot of the fear and we can support and guide the person that's dying rather than stand there and be afraid. That was
1: a beautiful explanation. It's, and I always say to myself, it's always about the person in the, in, the, the be, in the bed. And the other thing that I always say is when fear walks into the room, it, it, it's, it's an energy that's very heavy. So the more educated we are, like what you just said
2: is what you want to bring to the bedside. You know, taking care of someone at end of life is different than taking care of someone who's going to get better. Yeah. You and I know that, but most people don't know that. And so end of life work is judged by how people get better unless we teach them the difference beautiful
1: we have to go to break barbara so we're going to come back and we're going to talk more about this uh, when we come back so hang in there everybody we'll be right back
3: become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america
0: Nina offers an alternative to traditional counseling. Sessions are not just 50 minutes, but a full hour. When you go in for a regular counseling session, many times you don't remember everything. Nina's difference is a summary email after each session and or a follow-up phone call if needed up to two weeks after. Nina also provides hospital visit consultations as necessary. Sessions with Nina Paula are $250. And if you book a three-session package, you will get a $100 discount. Let's get you feeling peaceful and happy again. Losing someone we love is one of the most challenging, fearful, and heart-rending experiences we are ever likely to face. In her book, Dearly Departed, Nina Impala shares stories of her experiences as a hospice volunteer for more than 12 years and how those experiences prepared her for the final days of her own parents. Nina emphasizes the importance of being a good listener and living a good life. Dearly Departed by Nina Impala is available in paperback or Kindle edition through Amazon.com or your favorite book retailer. are listening to inspiring end of life conversations. If you have a question for Nina Impala or her guest today, call into our program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to spirit at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program.
1: So we are back with Barbara Carnes Hospice Pioneer and we were talking uh, about the fear of death and what we can do to ease that through education and knowing as much as we can about death. Another topic, Barbara, that I find to be very, very interesting is how most people die the way they've lived And I wanted to know if you've seen that a lot in your career and what that means when we get to the place in life where death is imminent and moving forward as the person is passing away, we see characteristics because of the way they've lived their life.
2: Dying is just one more challenge in living. It's a big challenge, but that's all it is. It's just one more challenge. And we're going to deal with that challenge. We're going to face that challenge in the same way that we've dealt with any other challenge in life. Mm -hmm. And so, look at a person's personality and you can pretty well see how they're going to approach the end of their life. Interesting. You know, a, an A-type personality, an in-charge kind of personality, is going to continue to be in charge. And they'll have their DNR done, their advanced directives. They'll be in charge and organized. Okay. And the laid-back, easygoing, content to watch the soaps all afternoon, uh-huh. <laughs> be content to sit in their recliner all afternoon. Um yeah. So, It's so interesting because we don't tend to think of it that way, but dying is just our final experience Mm -hmm. in living.
1: Yeah. And I know that I've, whenever I've had a patient that was perplexing, I always ask the family about their life and then I get a better idea about the way that that person's going to die. And then I share that information with the family, you know, if they were a very, um, you know, outgoing person. Were they introverted? Were they extroverted? Did they ask for what they wanted, did, or did they, you know, were they more the person that was in the background? And it, it, it really helped me a lot when I was when I was with a family. I also well, fun- go ahead, Barbara.
2: Also, I've I've learned that the personality stays the same. Well, it doesn't stay the same. The mm-hmm. way they handle challenges stays the same. Their personality characteristics tend to intensify.
1: Oh, so, give us an example. You need to give us one of your stories for that one. Okay.
2: Well, if if I'm easygoing uh, in my living, I may become more irritable. I may become... Uh, less patient. Mm -hmm. If I have been normally uh, a grouchy um, person, I may be just an absolute ogre. You know, our personality doesn't change. It intensifies.
1: Okay. So it gets bigger.
2: It does get bigger.
1: There was a story, I think, about a four-year-old little girl so I got the right one, Barbara. I'm looking at your book right now. Um, who was who dying? Yeah, I think it was a four-year-old little girl that was dying. Shoot, I have the little notes right here, but we'll keep going. I'll probably find it. But the other thing I want to, you know, discuss about that is, you know, when we're talking about death, one of the things that I like to share with people too. You know, you get into all different kinds of subjects because that's just kind of how I am, and people don't. Don't die alone. You know, I think it's really important to remember that you don't die alone and being at the bedside and opening up to what I call an awareness when I walk into the room to be able to feel and just be present with my patients, that there's there's something else there that's there to help us. And you can't really see it,
2: but you can feel it. I... I have been at the bedside with so, so many people that I'm absolutely convinced that we do not die alone. Yeah. I believe that our loved ones who have gone before us come to be with us to help us get from this world to the next. Yes. And, you know, I, the story that you're thinking about is actually a little, a little guy Okay. And I took care of his mother when she died. Okay. And, and two years later, after she died, I got a phone <laughs> call from grandma who was raising him. And she said, um, it's it's his time. I don't want to use his name. It's his time. And would you come and help us be with him? Oh. And... Both his mother and father had died two and three years earlier. In the weeks before he died, he started collecting money from everyone and he said he was going to take a trip. He said, I can't live with you anymore. I'm going to go live with my parents. Mm-hmm. Now, this was family dynamics where there wasn't any talk about dad. He was considered the bad guy. A lot of talk about mom. And yet he said he was going to go live with his parents. Mm. In the minutes before he died, we would hold his little body um, and sit in a rocking chair and hold him and rock him back and forth. And at one point, he opened his eyes really wide And he started looking around the room, and it was like he was looking for something. It was like the room was filled with, with people that we couldn't see. And at one point, he raised his hand, and he turned, and he pointed to the corner of this little bedroom, and he called mom by name. And he stayed focused on that corner until he died. You can't convince me that Mom wasn't there. That's right. To help him get from this world to the next, we do not die alone. How soon was it um, that he died after he started seeing them? Just out of
1: curiosity, if you remember. Oh, it was.
2: It was just minutes, and and um, in the hours to minutes before death, Mm -hmm. we are generally non-responsive. We may be talking, we may be moving, but we're not really aware of what's going on around and about us. And um, so the movements didn't coordinate with anything that applied to this world and what was going on. And that's how dying is. You know, you just have to know that they're so removed from their physical body. What, what I like to use as an example mm-hmm. is that from one to three weeks before death, we really begin labor, we begin labor to leave our body and we're working the driver of the car is working to disconnect from this physical body okay labor is a lot like the little chick you know we've all seen the little chicken that's working so hard pecking 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 mm-hmm. to get out of its shell mm-hmm. and think oh it's just working so hard we go through labor to leave our physical body. It's like the shell. And that labor for us, the watchers, looks like it's really hard work. Yep. And yet that's how we're disconnecting. Yeah. And so we who are there, if, if we can guide family to understand that what mom's doing is normal this is how we get out of the body, and that's you know, mom's this little chick. She's working hard. You just,
1: it's the, it's an inside job at the end.
2: Yes, you ma'am. Know? Perfect.
1: It, it is. It's an inside job. I noticed all of this. You know, I've noticed it with lots of people, but with my own mom, it was, it was intense. You know, because I, I knew, I knew just. Days before, I just could look at her face, and I looked at her eyes, and I knew that she was a little bit there, and she was a little bit here. And what I found is sometimes when pe- people will talk, like the the little boy said that he was going on a trip. Was it? Did you say, Barbara?
2: He was going on a trip to go I'm see his, go parents. Live with his parents.
1: Yep. And I've heard, I heard one lady say, come on, let's get out of here. You know, so people will start to say things and they're trying to leave. And I wonder if it's almost like this feeling of, you just not sure how you're going to be getting out of your body, but you know, you're going to be getting out of it soon. And so there's lots of little things that take place that kind of help you with that. And remembering that you're not alone. Right. And I think, you know, if, if just from my work and, all the different people's work that I've read that work in this field, I really got this feeling, and I try and impart this on other people, is that when you get to the end of life, if you've educated yourself quite a bit, there's there's help from the unseen, just like you're talking about, you know, and I love the way you describe, you know, trying to get through that little chick when he's trying to get through the egg, and all this internal work, that we're doing at the end of life, is that little chicken, the egg. And you're doing it
2: for maybe months or weeks before you die. Yes, two to four months. Mm-hmm. You're starting to release from your your body. That's why the the eating decreases gradually. The sleeping increases gradually. And we start to withdraw from the world around us. You know, we're letting go of our hold here and yes. building our place there. in the other world. Or the afterlife, and, as my other yes.
1: guest, Father Nathan, puts it, the afterlife. You know, and, and I, when you talk about how he saw his parents and we don't get to see it or hear it, I think that has to do with the great mystery, that it's kind of like when babies are born and they can't speak when they're born and they can't see real clearly when they're born, but I believe they still see other things from that other place, but they can't speak it or tell us about it. And I kind of think it's the same way when people go. It's it's I call it the great mystery. Maybe that's weird, but I just always say, well, it's a great mystery. We're not supposed to know about that. So, but they're already getting spoken to and they're hearing things that we can't hear or see. Many of the near-death experiencers will kind of tell you something a little bit similar to this.
2: Yes. Well,
1: it's comforting.
2: We, we go through labor. Well, let, let me back up. There's a okay. lot of similarities between birth and death. Okay. Um, think about food. You know, when we're born, we gradually introduce fluids and it's milk and then gradually soft foods. You know, how we build up to food, food. And when we're dying, we gradually reverse that to where we're just taking fluids. Um, and then um, our activities and labor we yeah. we go through labor to get here, mm-hmm. and we go through labor to leave it. I had a, a a beautiful letter from a woman whose whose adult daughter died, and this woman wrote me this letter saying that she witnessed her daughter's birth backwards as she was oh. dying. Oh, it just kind of gives you goosebumps because, it does. yeah. Cause, cause that's right. And she went through all of this, um, and it, it was it was beautiful, beautiful. And it really has stuck with me because I can see that.
1: It's such a beautiful analogy, you yeah. know. And when you really think about it, seriously, like c- concrete facts, <laughs> it it does make a lot of sense. I I uh, actually had a woman. It was years ago, Barbara, and I actually won an award with the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization for the article. It, it was an article that I wrote about a woman who was very afraid of dying and a very afraid of being forgotten. And I, and this was way back in my early days. I was maybe, God, 20, more than 20 years ago. And she said, Nina, what is it going to be like when I die? And at the time, I was a volunteer. And it was just like this download from heaven. And I I told her, I think it's a lot like being born. And I was surprised it even came out of my mouth. And then my mother told me that I had an aunt, lovely lady who died from cancer. I was only six years old. And she told my mom exactly what I had told that other woman. So I kind of feel like my auntie was helping me from heaven help this other woman pass away. Yeah. Yeah. And I just feel we're so intricately connected. And the more that we know about death and the more education that we have about death, the more open we are to you know, help from that side and this side. And
2: yet our natural response mm-hmm. is to avoid talking about dying, yeah. avoid even considering advanced directives, anything that has to do with dying. It's almost like if I think about it or talk about it, then it's surely going to happen. So we're these ostriches that put our head in the sand. And then one day the doctor says, oh, by the way, I can't fix you. And we're totally um, unprepared. Mm -hmm. Um, We have absolutely no idea of what to do or what's going to happen to us. And yeah. therein lies the fear. Yeah. So if someone
1: does, you know, what I, I, I mean, if someone gets a, we're getting close to break again, but let's just try and do this a little bit just before we go. If someone comes with, you know, a diagnosis of a terminal illness, I just always, you know, bring to them, you know, it's step by step. Let's just do baby steps right now. Mm-hmm. Baby steps. You know, instead of getting so far out in the future. And what you have described thus far about four months before, three months before, and it being labor, it's it's like you're it's like nine months to get there and nine months to you know get back, is what I always tell my pregnant ladies. So it's like with death, you you have to just kind of open up. As in anything in life, Barbara, the death teaches us that is to just open up to the experience and what's next, and I think for me to me, that takes the fear away a little bit. I mean i I know at the very end and and I'll probably be a little bit nervous myself, but in the interim before that, what could what could I do to lessen the fear of it except to open up to okay, this is just another part of my life, and it's the end part so yeah you need
2: to go to break?
1: Um, let's. You know what? Let's go to break real quick, um, and then we'll come back, and we're going to get a little bit deeper into this and the last steps and when somebody dies. Okay. Okay, thanks. We'll be right back.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Nina offers
0: an alternative to traditional counseling. Sessions are not just 50 minutes, but a full hour. When you go in for a regular counseling session, many times you don't remember everything. Nina's difference is a summary email after each session and or a follow-up phone call if needed up to two weeks after. Nina also provides hospital visit consultations as necessary. Sessions with Nina Ampala are $250. And if you book a three-session package, you will get a $100 discount. Let's get you feeling peaceful and happy again. Losing someone we love is one of the most challenging, fearful, and heart-rending experiences we are ever likely to face. In her book, Dearly Departed, Nina Impala shares stories of her experiences as a hospice volunteer for more than 12 years and how those experiences prepared her for the final days of her own parents. Nina emphasizes the importance of being a good listener and living a good life. Dearly Departed by Nina Impala is available in paperback or Kindle edition through Amazon.com or your favorite book retailer. are listening to inspiring end of life conversations. If you have a question for Nina Impala or her guest today, call into our program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to tutoringforthespirit at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program.
1: We're back with Barbara Carnes, hospice pioneer and we are trying to put lots into the show and i'm packing it in there best i can barbara and what i wanted to talk about to you in this last part of the show is you've got a beautiful explanation in in your book called the 11th hour and i was just so surprised to see it's what it's like to die and you go through and you bullet point actually and it's really great to read it and it's it's very simplistic And we're going to talk about that. But before we talk about that a little bit, one of the things that I wanted to address is pain. How the importance of pain being managed at the end of life. My experience has been when people are in pain, they have a very hard time getting out of their body and they don't die well. So we have to really make sure that pain is managed. So can you tell us a little bit about what that means?
2: Well, I think the most important thing I want to get across to people is that dying is not painful. Disease causes pain. And there's a lot of diseases that people die from that have no pain at all. And so you're going to look at a person's disease history to see if pain has been part of their disease. Got it. If pain has not, been a part of their disease history, then you're not going to give narcotics or morphine. Actually, what their body feels like is heavy and tired tiredness they've never been able to explain, have never felt before. They might feel achy all over, kind of like if you have the flu. Okay. Um, Well, you're not going to take morphine if you have the flu. Mm -hmm. You're going to take a couple ibuprofen. So if pain is not part of the disease process, In the days to hours, even weeks before death, you can give some ibuprofen, but you don't have, there isn't pain to manage. Now, there's a lot of diseases that people die from that does cause pain. Okay. And as a person is approaching death, you have to manage the pain differently than if If you're working with someone who's going to get better, because the rules are entirely different, major is that the body is shutting down, so nothing works right, and so the time frame and the amount of medicine, pain medicine that you give a person, you literally have to play with it to find what's going to work, because the disease is affecting how the body is going to assimilate and use that medicine as, you know, the blood is slowing down the bloodstream, the breathing. So if the disease has been part, uh, pain has been part of the disease process, you are going to treat that pain until the last breath. Because just because the person is non-responsive doesn't mean that the pain isn't there. We're not making the pain go away. The medicine covers up the pain. So you have to keep the cover on. And you do that by giving the medicine around the clock on a regular schedule. But know that as death gets closer, you may have to increase the amount of narcotic that you're giving because the body isn't assimilating it and processing it as it normally would.
1: And everybody's body is very different in how they do it. That's one of the things that I've noticed. You know, some people, it takes a lot more medication than others.
3: Right. And you just
1: have to watch by body language, grimacing, things like that like that, you know, to see if that's, you know, they don't have a calm face. They're probably, they may be in pain, especially if it's in their diagnosis or disease process, correct?
2: Right. You look at their disease history. Okay. And if it had pain, then they're still pain. Yeah. Um, and another important in the months to weeks before death, if if someone is is getting a narcotic then you must also give them a laxative because the narcotic slows down the intestine and constipation becomes huge. I mean, huge. You must give a laxative when you're giving any kind of pain medicine. Very important. And most people don't know that.
1: No, they don't. No, you're absolutely right about that, and it's it, and it can be very, very painful for them. And then people that are in pain, it's just you don't want to be in pain when you're dying. You just don't, you know. I just that's I'm fierce about that one.
2: We want people
1: to be comfortable. Yes. Now, when you're talking about, I, I'm going to read a little bit of this because I just love it. When I was reading it, um, this week, that. If so, you know, it's so funny, Barbara, you were talking about, you know, this isn't like a Clint Eastwood movie where the person just turns their head, closes their eyes, and they're gone. (laughs) (laughs) Death is, people don't look that pretty when they're passing away. Um, You know, there's all, they probably lost a ton of weight. They are probably, you know, they're just, they just look very different. So, you have here, you are dying, and this is what it's like to die. And this is in her 11th hour book. This is so beautiful to read. And it says, relax, be like a dog, a log, sorry, <laughs> dog, Be <laughs> like a log flowing downstream or walk through a lovely garden following a path that leads to, to a gate that you walk through. You're doing a good job. You have always done the best you could in life. Let go of any feelings of mistakes or failures. Take only the good with you. Everyone here understands that you have to leave. We will miss you. We love you. But we understand it's time for you to go. You can leave whenever you're ready. And then the last bullet point says you are not alone. Others who have died before you are here to help and guide you. There may be a spiritual presence. Ask for help. And help and, and help will present itself. So if you're at the bedside with somebody and they're non-responsive, is this something that you would say? Oh, absolutely,
2: because for two reasons. One is we don't know what it's like to die. And most of the time, people don't tell us that we're dying. Um, And so I think it's important to give them some instruction. Here's what's happening. Here's what you can do about it. It's also for it's those family members, those people that are there at the bedside, mm. because they are scared and they, they want to do something, but they don't know what to do. And so when I'm there, I do it first, and I show them what they can do and say. And then I turn it over to the family and say, you can support and guide dad through this. I'm going to back up a minute and say, yeah. before that, that is when the breathing changes and there are minutes before death that that's when I use that. In the hours to days before death, okay. when the person is non-responsive, I encourage each family member or significant other to go in alone and talk with the person that's dying. It's a lot easier to talk to someone who's not going to argue back with you. That's and true. You- You talk about the good and you talk about the difficult, the challenges, because there is no perfect life. And the person that's dying is processing their life on many, many levels. They're saying, What have I done? Who have I touched? So if each significant person goes in and talks from their heart, I love you. I'm going to miss you terribly. Remember when I was 12 and you took me out behind the garage and you beat the tar out of me? <laughs> Shouldn't have done that. That still hurts. You know, all of I, those things you talk about and, and give each person the opportunity to say goodbye. That's in the hours before death.
1: Okay. I always say, get it past the skin. Try not to hold it in and get it past the skin because then, you know, you when you get into grief after the person's died, shoulda, coulda, woulda, I wish I'd said this before mom died. I wished I'd be able to tell them that I love them. I wish to let them know that I forgive them for anything, mm-hmm. you know, because as you say, Barbara, you know, our lives are just not perfect. And all of us, when we get to this stage in life. You you do and inner work about did I do everything I could did I say everything I could was I a good person am I going to go to you know am I going to go to heaven that comes up a lot too for people you know where I've done something bad when people linger just briefly you know when people linger Barbara you know it's the doctor says you know the person's imminent and then they linger and they don't go. I my you know I kind of have a answer for that is when the soul is complete it will leave depending how that is and I just need to you just as a family I should say you need to hold space for whatever it is that that person is wrapping up and and now I get the little chick in the egg going you know trying to get through labor that's part of the labor and would you say that's probably the best way to describe it if someone's imminent Because haven't you, and I'm sure you have, and I have too, Is had patients and then families like, why haven't they died? You know, they're exhausted. The patient's not passing away.
2: What can we do in a situation like that? We have limited control over the time that we die. And so some of the dynamics that I look for when a person is holding on and doesn't die and doesn't die. The first thing I'll do is say to the family, do you think there's some unfinished business that needs to be addressed? Mm. And I'll often hear, well, you know, I don't know. He hasn't talked to his brother in 20 years. but..." And so we call the brother on the phone. And say, you know, your brother's dying right now. I'm going to put the phone up to his ear. And you say whatever's in your heart that you need to say. Okay. So you address unfinished business. Also, um, I I think that we, in this limited control over the time that we die, we may have limited ability to hold on until someone gets there. You know, son's on his way in, gets in the room, five minutes later, dad's dead. Well, he waited for that son to leave, but turn that around and son's been sitting by the bed for three days and he gets up to pee and dad dies while he's peeing because he waited for the sun to leave as a as a means of protecting okay so you look at the relationships and the personalities and then you see if you can figure out what's going on but bottom line is when our work is finished we will leave that's true fear, fear also will hold us in our body if there's something we're Really, really afraid of. I I took care of a, an extremely religious woman. Oh, my goodness. She, top of the list for me as far as people dedicated to her religion. And she didn't die and didn't die. And one day, she told me she had done something that she knew God couldn't forgive her for. Oh, and I talked to her about God's love and uh, she wasn't going to buy it. And I asked her to bring in, if I could bring in her minister, which she said, yes. And the minister talked to her and no, no, she knew God couldn't forgive. Mm. And we had our our hospice chaplain come in. And I, I really think God finally just got tired of waiting for her and said, come on, I'm taking you. Come,
1: <laughs> come sit on my lap. I've huh. actually seen that happen before, you know, where it's
2: like, okay, it's
1: it's all right. Everything's going to be okay. I say a prayer and it's time to go, which I have gotten to that point on this show. So, I have just, Barbara, I have enjoyed this so much. And I feel like this is a topic that we covered pain today. We covered, you know, the last minutes of death. We've covered the spiritual aspects of it. We've We've covered so much and there's even more that we could cover. I would encourage everybody to go to bkbooks.com, Barbara. Yep, yep. And that is Barbara's website. All of her books are there. And you've just been a wonderful guest, my dear. Oh, thank you. This has been very, very delightful. And maybe we'll do it again. We will. Let us know when your new book comes out, because I know you're working on one. So let's, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll connect again for that. And thanks for all the good work you're doing out there with COVID. It's really appreciated, Barbara.
2: You're welcome. Take good care. Okay. Blessings to all.
1: Blessings to you too, my dear. Mm Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you so much for enjoying inspiring end-of-life conversations. If you have any loved ones going through hospice, getting on hospice, be sure to send an email out to me uh, or at barbara at bkbooks.com. Bookmark this show. Follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Insta, and Facebook. I'm on all of them. Take good care, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
0: We hope you have found hope in this week's edition of Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations. Please join your host, Nina Impala, for another program next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again soon.